Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine colic with Dr. Jesse Tyma of Mid-Atlantic Equine Medical Center. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Tyma, DBM, DACVS Large Animal, graduated from Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine in 2014 with Phi Zeta Honors. Then she completed a one-year rotating internship at Rhinebeck Equine. Dr. Tyma then completed a three-year surgical residency at the University of Georgia and spent an additional year there as a clinical instructor in large animal surgery and emergency and critical care. In 2019, she became a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons Large Animal. Dr. Tyma is also certified in veterinary acupuncture. Her clinical interests include acute abdomen and emergency surgery and medicine, wound management, minimally invasive surgery, and lameness and rehabilitation. Her research has focused on the gastrointestinal microbiome, post-operative colic complications, and musculoskeletal regenerative therapies. Welcome, Dr. Taima. Thank you so much for having me, Kim. I'm really excited to, to be on this podcast with you today. Well, we're excited to have you here because we know that about 40% of AAP member veterinarians are solo practitioners. And there's a lot of other mixed animal practitioners out there who don't have large animal surgical facilities. So that means that most of those veterinarians will have to refer severe colics to clinics or surgical facilities for advanced care. So let's start with this. Can you offer advice to ambulatory or mixed animal vets about when to refer a colicky horse and how to communicate that to the client? Sure thing. Um, Thanks, Kim. I think there are There are a lot of ways to answer this question, both with regards to looking at the horse and the clinical picture and then how to initiate that conversation with a client and really set them up for success with their expectations of what that process is going to look like. Um, So as far as the clinical side of things, I think, you know, just going through your your colic exam um, for the for the new practitioner, I whether or not they've, they've been with. Um, they've had mentorship in working up a colic, doing a thorough physical exam, um, palpating per rectum, passing a nasogastric tube. Um, some, some practitioners will have an ultrasound available to them, which may help in that decision making. Um, but just with regards to putting those pieces together and deciding what's appropriate for a referral, I think off the bat, um, in a, in a very general sense, recognizing that very colicky old horses, that's generally uh, not a great sign. And that's going to be one of our more severe colics and one that is likely going to need to be managed in a hospital setting and or have surgery. Um, in general, heart rates that are greater than 60 to 70 are are bad. Um, those warrant passage of a nasogastric tube pretty soon. Um, I also encourage young practitioners to really hone in on their physical examination and look for signs that a horse might be hypovolemic, might be shocky, um, looking at their mucous membranes, looking at their jugular refill, feeling their distal extremities. Are they cool because they're vasoconstricted because they're shocky? These these are signs that the horse may need more advanced care that can be offered um, in a field care setting. I think that, you know, a lot of the majority of colics that are seen in the field are going to end up being mild, self-limiting, are going to respond to pretty minimal management. I think standard operating procedure for management of colic in a field, a lot of horses get banamine either by a veterinarian or even by an owner or a manager before you get there. Um, they'll get some fluids. 
via the nasogastric tube. Sometimes people will run fluids in the field as well. I think something to warn young practitioners about is, is offering that too much or really getting stuck running fluids in a field. That's something that can be done much more aggressively in a referral setting. And then with regards to that conversation, I think setting up a client for success for what referral may look like um, is so important as part of this process. I would encourage any veterinarian, especially young veterinarians who are really just finding their narrative with regards to colic um, and managing clients to start the conversation early about referral and about colic surgery, even for a very mild colic. Uh, I think it's always good to have an idea of if the horse has an option for referral, if the horse has an option for surgery, if there is referral, and they may not know the answer to that and you may not be able to answer all the questions, but at least it starts them thinking down that process. Um, I think getting a handle on what the horse's insurance status is um, if they are insured, what kind of insurance they hold? Um, are there exclusions? Uh, are we looking at major medical? Are we looking at mortality? Those are really important things for times. One of the things that we do know about prognosticating colics for a bad colic that is going to need surgery, the sooner it can get to the clinic and on the table, typically the better they do postoperatively. Um, so just having those pieces in play and being able to communicate to the client in what can be a very frantic state, just in a calm manner, just, just get across like, hey, have you thought about referral? Is that an option? Hey, do we have transport lined up? Hey, what's this horse's insurance status? I think all of that will lend itself to that process going more smoothly. Again, when you're talking to clients, I think this is a really, really key. I mean, I don't care how long you've been in practice. When you're dealing with a client who's nervous, scared, and upset because their horse is colicking right in front of them, what are some tips to be able to communicate what can be gained through a referral? Sure thing. Um, that's that's huge. So um, a, a lot of clients, they're going to have a, they're going to have a various really varying experiences with colic, whether this is their first horse and they've never experienced colic. And they really don't even know what colic is to people who are very well oiled machine to the equine emergency and, and know the process. I think understanding that um, when a horse is referred in to a hospital setting, they're going to have access to blood work that you may not have in the field, like more extensive blood work. Some people can do some point of care blood work in the field, but I think that you're going to get a much better idea, um, a just greater hematological parameters um, in a in a clinic setting. Not all practitioners have an ultrasound um, on their truck. Most, pretty much all hospitals, you're going to have an uh, at least a flash abdominal ultrasound to look at some key areas in the abdomen that give us an inclination as to what's going on and how to more properly manage that. When a horse is hospitalized, it's a lot easier to get a larger volume of intravenous fluids into them more quickly um, to manage a state of hypovolemic shock or dehydration. And also it's easier to get oral fluids into them. We'll leave a nasogastric tube indwelling. Um, that can either mean that if the horse is producing reflux, that we can reflux them every two hours because we have staff here around the around the clock. Or if they have a bad large colon impaction, that means that we can put fluids in every two hours or run continuous rate fluids. And those are things that are just truly not practical in a field setting. Everyone thinks that I mean, referral, getting a horse into a referral center for management of colic is not inexpensive. But what's also not inexpensive is having your ambulatory veterinarian or having an ambulatory veterinarian come out multiple times in one, in one short setting like say over a day going out three times, all those field calls, all those emergency calls, that's going to add up as well. And that horse may be better managed in a 
in a hospital setting, especially especially if the horse is still colicking after that many visits, probably more appropriate. Um, that being said, again, it is a it, some people there's there's a bit of sticker shock, I think, um, walking in. And I think that's another thing that will set up that veterinarian for success is, is at least knowing what are the expectations when that horse gets the referral center? Is there going to be a deposit required before they arrive? Even if they're not the ones who are quoting because quotes from referral center can change. Um, even still, just having an idea, a ballpark idea of, of what, um, what care is going to cost at a referral center, I think is very important. Um, clients can certainly be frustrated when they arrive to a referral center thinking that colic surgery is X amount. And in fact, it's probably more appropriately estimated at two times X amount. So um, I think just having a, a general ballpark idea just really sets people up for success. They're stressed. Um, sometimes they are they have selective listening because they're stressed. So I think remaining calm and just giving them the information that they can to get them to the next step is important. Well, and continuing on those same lines, aside from trying to prepare them for the costs, what else can you do to set a client up for success with regard to expectations with the referral center admission and care and who they get information from? Sure thing. Um, that's a great question. I think that's probably going to vary a little bit from referral center to referral center. So what I would encourage any practitioner who's new to an area or a young practitioner just starting their career is get a sense for how many referral centers do you have nearby? Who are you referring to when? Do you only have one? Um, get to know the clinicians that are going to be admitting the colics, that are going to be managing the colics, um, just so that you have an idea as well. A lot of times these referral centers, and including where I work, we have a rotating call schedule for who's going to take in colics. So we may all do things a little bit differently to some extent, but we do. We also have a general process as part of the Mid-Atlantic the way of what, what people are going to expect. Of course, we're all going to communicate it a little bit differently. I think as far as what they can expect when they arrive, that's probably pretty different from place to place right now, especially in light of where we are with COVID um, and just being able to be a part of that workup process um, and probably just different as far as policies from hospital to hospital. Um, but I think that generally a colic workup is going to take somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes to get more information on what the what the recommendation would be for going forward, whether that be medical management, whether that be surgical management, and why, and, and an explanation as to that. Um, similar to the recommendations that I'm making to the field care practitioners, when I speak to a client, even for a very basic medical colic and something that maybe looks like it resolved on the way in based on the previous report, I'm still opening that surgical conversation because colic's a really dynamic process and I don't know what way it's going to go. And for me, I'd much rather have a conversation with a calm and very awake alert client at 8 p.m. Then, yeah. hey, horse really turned on us here. It's 2.30 a.m. and I need to know if we can go to surgery now. Um, so I think just really setting them up for success of these are all the things that can happen. Um, I'm not saying you have to make a decision right now because that's not where we're at, but I want to plant the seed that I want you to think about this. Um, typically, I would say that they're going to be get communication at least once a day um, from a referral center, from the managing doctor on the case, probably a little bit different in how that looks from clinic to clinic. And then similarly, um, I follow up with my referring veterinarians, especially on these more dynamic cases, at least once a day to let them know where they're at and 
um, you know, what we found, what the recommendations are, what the plan looks like to go home and what the recommendations will be once they get home. And then any follow up care that I think that might be necessary for the referring veterinarian to to complete. That's probably a, a good idea. So maybe some tips. How do you manage a post-operative colic when it comes home? And, and what kind of complications do you as a vet look for and do you warn your client to look for? Sure, sure thing. Um, that's a great question. You know, we, as a surgeon, we, you know, we cut a colic, we're managing them in the hospital, we're weaning them off of supportive care post-operatively, making decisions about NSAIDs, making decisions about antibiotics, um, managing our incision, which every surgeon is going to do a little bit differently. And I think then when they're when they're going to be discharged, just setting a client up for expectations of like, this is what you're going to be feeding your horse. Um, this is how I want your feeding plan to change over the next five to seven days to resume normal. Or we're not actually going to resume your old normal because we don't recommend that that's the best feeding strategy given your horse's colic. Um, this is what exercise or exercise restrictions truly are going to look like for the next one month, two months, three months. This is what I want manure output to look for to look like over the next several days. It should ramp up with time as you increase food. These are things to monitor for. Um, these are things that I want you to do if you note any of these concerning signs. I think probably. It, at least for me, I, I really try and get horses off of all medications for at least 24 to 48 hours before I send them home. Um, in a most ideal setting, sometimes they will go home on a course of longer oral antimicrobials if it's appropriate given the case. Otherwise, I at least try and have them off and, and I set the referring veterinarian up with pretty explicit instructions regarding incisional care. I think the way that any surgeon closes, closes or manages their incision, like I said, is going to be pretty, it's going to, there's going to be a wide variation there. Um, for me, um, I'm not closing my incision. I'm closing my incision completely um, intradermally. So there's going to be no suture removal. So I tell the referring that's that. I give the clients very explicit things to watch for. Certainly incisional infection is one of the biggest postoperative complications that we see with colics. It's something that as a surgeon, I definitely want to know about. So I'm giving my my clients, um, I'm outlining things to watch for with the incision that would be concerning for an infection. And then if they do notice any of those signs, I recommend that they follow up with their referring veterinarian or the, their, their regular veterinarian, primary care veterinarian. And at that point, I would really hope that they would reach out to me to discuss their findings. Um, is there fluid drainage? Are they ultrasounding it? Do they see a fluid pocket? Um, do they want to grab a culture on it? Do we want to open it up? Um, do we want to clean it, bandage it, things like that? I, I would really hope that they would communicate back with me if there are problems. Um, certainly in some of our sicker colics too, we can have some trouble with jugular veins occasionally, and, and that can be a pretty bad problem pretty quickly. So I encourage clients to watch uh, previous catheter sites for any evidence of inflammation that could be leading to a, um, a septic jugular vein. Um, obviously we're watching manure output and manure quality. We're watching for their overall appetite. Just overall, is the horse resuming its normal behavior in the stall? Is it acting normally? Is it as bright as it normally is? Um, is it engaging with people when they're around? Um, just, and if they're not, I'm encouraging clients to have their veterinarian follow up, but I'm not setting up um, expectations that a veterinarian needs to go out and see the horse postoperatively necessarily. I'm just trying to set the client up for things to watch that would warrant um, an additional evaluation. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health.
the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions, Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurement when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. And let's let's go to the veterinarian now, the, the referring vet. So what's kind of your overview of the clinical skills that those vets need to feel comfortable with a colic in the field? Because I know it it can be some horses look mild, and I know very experienced vets that go, this horse is going to the right now, load it up and go. And others, they're like, well, let's just, you know, give it a little banamine, let's wait a few hours, kind of keep an eye on it, check its temperature, it's going to, you know, so what are those clinical skills that you need to develop? Awesome. I think that's a that's a great question. And I know that some of our younger veterinarians in that period of COVID may have uh, yeah. missed out on really as busy of clinical rotations or as many opportunities on clinical rotations to practice these clinical skills. So at the end of the day, it all starts for me with a really thorough physical exam. And if you are monitoring a colic over time, noticing how those parameters are going to change. So some of the things that I touched on before, um, looking at heart rate as an indicator of pain, hemodynamic parameters, looking for signs of shock, gastrointestinal sounds as well um, are all important there. Rectal palpation skills, they the only way you get better at them is doing more of them. What I would encourage young practitioners to do is to set them up for success as much as they can. I'm a little bit spoiled. I get to do these in a hospital setting with at least with a very good handler. I'm doing them in stocks. But what I would encourage young veterinarians to do is to think about your physical restraint. Um, Do you have a good handler? Do you have a twitch available? Do you have a setup that you feel safe doing this? And then also chemical restraint. Are you sedating the horse to do that? I don't hesitate to give buscapan if I feel like the horse is really straining against me. I don't hesitate to put lidocaine in a rectum um, if the horse is straining against me. It just makes the procedure easier. And that's just, that's not even interpreting the actual test itself. That's just getting to do the test in a safe way. Then as far as the rectal palpation goes, you just need to do, do a lot of them and get more comfortable with what you're feeling. I would encourage all young practitioners, and I say this to our intern doctors all the time, even if you have an ultrasound available, I want you to rectal every single time before you ultrasound. Um, I want you to know that you're feeling small intestine before you go and you see small intestine by popping the probe on the belly. Uh, I think that developing good rectal skills, that's like one of the most important parts of being a good equine uh, practitioner and all that. It just takes practice and setting yourself up for success to do that, do that test safely. Passing a nasogastric tube, it's really important. Again, your restraint is going to be key here. Having someone who can handle the horse, not being afraid to sedate them if needed, not being afraid to twitch them. Um, I think you get good at this by tubing hard horses and tubing a lot of hard horses. And that's that's certainly how my intern doctors have gotten to be better at, at tubing horses. I tend to recommend, and I when I was a First starting out, I and on my own on ambulatory emergency, I would always warn clients of the risk of a nosebleed, even if that procedure went perfect. And that way, if it happened, uh, they weren't surprised. And as we all know, that can be dramatic. And if it didn't happen, then that's great. But at least they know that that's a risk of a, the procedure that you're doing. Not all 
uh, ambulatory practitioners are going to have an ultrasound available to them. But those that do, I encourage that they get really comfortable with at least a flash ultrasound technique. That's a fantastic paper, just giving you, rather than doing a full abdominal ultrasound, you're honing in on areas that are really going to give you more information to decide what you think is going on and to make the next, the most appropriate next step. I would also encourage all young practitioners to get really comfortable doing a belly tap. Um, we think about it, you know, it is an invasive procedure. We're going into the abdomen, but there are ways to do that very safely in all contexts. And most of the time you can get fluid, even if you're not necessarily seeing a significant amount of fluid on ultrasound. I think though, I would heed caution if there's a big concern for sand colic, because uh, then the, if the large colon is filled with sand and sitting on the the bottom of the abdominal floor, that's a really good way to do an enterocentesis. I think there's a paper a few years ago that said that that happens in like 20% of sand colic cases. Um, and if an enterocentesis happens, it's something that can be managed. But I think that um, at the end of the day, getting being able to do a belly tap is, is really important. And the, the context in which I think that's particularly helpful is if you have um, a suspicion that a horse is ruptured, being able to make that determination in a field setting versus sending that horse in, obviously that horse is uh, in really bad clinical shape, um, potentially could die en route to a clinic as well. Um, so to be able to confirm that there is feed material in the abdomen just on a gross tap is, is a very helpful thing to be able to do. Um, or say that you have a horse that you suspect may have a strangulating lesion, particularly a small intestinal strangulating lesion, to do that belly tap in the field and to see serosanguineous fluid. Um, if you have a, a lactate meter and you're comparing peripheral and belly lactate can be really helpful as well. But for those horses that may not have a surgical option, to know that you have a serosanguineous tap in the field in a, in a horse that is pretty severe colic um, and you're looking at strangulated, possibly dead bowel, uh, if that horse isn't having surgery, that there's really no option for medical management, nor is it fair to keep pushing. So to be able to make have those clinical skills to make those determinations that won't prolong unnecessary suffering in those cases, I think is very useful. That's a great tip. And also, uh, just from a, a, a friend of mine's personal, don't try and be a hero. If you've got a horse that's flopping down on you, don't stick your arm in there. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Like at the end of the day, safety is always number one. I mean, if the horse is too colicky, too violent, um, too unpredictable with its pain and how it's behaving, don't try and stick your arm in there. Don't break your arm to do anything. Don't get underneath that horse to do a belly tap. Get that horse on a trailer, truly. Um, that's it, the sooner that you can get them on the trailer, probably the better shape that they're going to be in. Um, and in those cases, I think setting a client up for success for can you take a, you know, what kind of trailer setup do we have? If, if the horse go, goes down on the trailer, keep driving, like don't stop, don't try and get the horse up, like just keep going. Um, but knowing that, yeah, we do have horses that come in down on the trailer and it, it's typically an indication of how painful they are. Um, and oftentimes how bad the colic is truly, but we are, we have more staff and, and more equipment to manage that type of case in a referral setting than in the field. I also had a, a vet friend to say, while it, it looks really nice to throw a horse in the trailer with an IV bag on, you're not you're not helping anything. <laughs> no, you're really not. Uh, I think that's a great point, because at the end of the day, um, 
we in the ivy bag can only be so much higher physically than the horse and that's really the rate that that's going to run in is greatly um greatly affected by gravity and how far above the jugular vein it is so it's not really doing much um you, you know worst case scenario it comes unhooked and they could get an air embolus so i don't i don't see a huge value in doing that um just leave a tube in if you feel like that's appropriate because they've had a large volume of reflux we will always get your tube back to you um we appreciate that when that's when that's done because we know it's done in the best interest of the horse too but yeah the iv iv fluids on a trailer not not my favorite way to see a horse show up but it happens sometimes yeah my, my vet friend had said yeah so many horse owners have become so savvy and they understand vets can run fluids in the field yes and then they're like well shouldn't they just keep it on the trailer and you're like not really. Yeah. It's it's always nice to have that yeah. conversation. <laughs> I agree. And fluids in the field for me is a slippery slope because it's it's like you have a catheter in, you feel responsible for taking care of that catheter. You want to know the horse is going to get the fluids. But for you to stand there and run fluids, the time that you are spending, you should be charging for every minute of that time. But realistically, you know, you're not going to. Um, so I think I think it's it's a little dicey to run fluids in the field. Again, always better in a referral center if possible. The horse truly needs fluids. It probably should be in a referral center. And, and I love your point of get to know your local referral centers before you need. I mean, that's such a yeah. great tip. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's really helpful. Like I I feel like I especially younger practitioners, like I'm I form some bonds with them and really chat with them about their colic workup. And, and if they have any questions or, you know, they're like, Hey, could I have done anything differently? Should I have done every, anything differently? And just to be able to have that really like vulnerable, candid conversation, I really enjoy. And I feel like it helps to get me, helps me to get to know them better as people too. And it's just going to set us all up for success for the care of that horse, for the care of the next horse that's going to come in um, with the two of us working together. For me, it's always a team approach. Like the referring vets are part of the team um, and getting to know them and uh, getting to know like, you know, their clinical practice and how they do things. It's, it's awesome. Cause I, I also know what to expect when a horse is walking in the door from that referring veterinarian then too. And those are great tips. Is there anything else that, that you would like to talk about, Dr. Taima, as far as it goes, colic referral, you know, or just colic in general? I I feel like I covered all the things that I really wanted to. I, I guess I cannot overstate how important communication with the client and trying to set the client up with expectations at the beginning, just planting the seed early for referral. Um, I think you know, some vets certainly feel a little bit sheepish when a horse shows up and it's like completely fixed. If it, you know, maybe they thought it may have had a non-strangulating um, large intestinal obstruction, like a, a displacement on rectal when they when they saw it, still a little colicky, they sent it in, it shows up, rectal's normal, blood work is right down the middle, everything looks normal, horse is, you know, clinically hydrated, heart rate's 36, standing there, passing manure, and they feel sheepish. And I'm like, you know what? Sending that horse is never the wrong thing. So I'd, I I want to encourage that too. And I'm not going to keep the horse in the hospital unnecessarily long either. Um, and I try and, you know, I always su support that with the owner too. The owner's like, oh, why did I come in? And it's like, you came in because your horse is really colicky. We know that this is a dynamic problem. You had the option to come in and this is really the best thing for your horse is, is getting checked out. And the best thing that I can do is tell you that 
yeah, the trailer ride and that motion, um, motion of the trailer ride and really just the time may have, may have been the trick, may have done the trick here, but, um, to know, to have it all checked out again, um, have second eyes on the case is really helpful. And then we have around the clock monitoring too. So even if that horse comes in fixed, there are a lot that will show up looking bright and comfy and then get colicky again a couple hours later. So, um, I, I always encourage people to never feel bad about sending anything, even if it fixes itself on the way. Um, we are here for that. We have staff that are here for that so that you don't have to stress about that all night long. And that's a great point. Thank you, Dr. Tom. I really appreciate you joining me on the Disease to Your podcast today. You're welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. And thanks to all our listeners for Disease Du Jour. Listen to this episode, previous episodes. We have a lot of great, as, as you might have noticed at the first, this is episode 80. So we've got a lot of good information that has been put out on the podcast you can go back and grab. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Um, we invite you to listen to Disease Du Jour podcasts on your favorite podcast platform or you can go to equimanagement.com and every episode is on the website with a short article that goes with it. And if you have any questions or suggestions for the podcast, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 